The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. There's a person in the room um, who I knew many, many years ago. Actually, I know her now. She's in her 40s. Um, and she's not literally in this room. She's in this room because she was a part of my life as a youth pastor. And she came, in, she came in my youth group as a as, as, um, junior high student. Her, her older brother was a part of the youth group. And so I, I knew the family, you know, the, the trips, the retreats. Uh, I knew mom, uh, so single parent mom. Um, mom would come to the church and um, do work in order to help pay for her uh, children to be able to go to, um, to camp, to go on missions trips. I have great respect for mom. And um, this little girl would sit through my Bible studies, and I, I never knew this about her. Uh, many years later, uh, when she was an adult, she and I were talking one time, and she said, you know, Danny, um, I know you did, never did this in, in, on purpose, but whenever you taught a Bible study and you were covering divorce, I always felt like there was something wrong with me. I always felt that as you were teaching about divorce, that it somehow was a sin uh, that, 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 that I did. And obviously, this is a student. This is a child. Um, and um, she experienced, obviously, lived in a, in a broken home. So she's in the room tonight. And when I say that is she so greatly impacted me with her words and if I could go back, and, and, and I know I can't, but if I could go back and be a different kind of youth pastor, I think I would kind of lean heavily, lean into communicating the fact that the divorce is something that affects, has, has affected us all. I would, I would venture to say, if you haven't been affected by it, man, the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, I, I also do counseling here at the church, and I've worked with couples. I... I perhaps ready to say hundreds of couples who, who have fought really, really hard for their marriages and it still didn't work out the way they had hoped. Um, there are some who came in and then maybe this was the, the second or the third marriage. And, and, and I've had friends, I know I'm jumping around a little bit as I am a little nervous, but I, I've had friends who wanted nothing to do with their marriage coming to an end and yet they had no say in the matter. And so I, I, I do want to present the Word of God. That's something that we do here at Maranatha. We teach through the whole Bible. We don't, we don't dodge the hard uh, uh, topics, but um, I, I've seen divorce because of adultery. Um, there are some who have experienced um, uh, infidelity and and others who maybe it's more of an emotional thing, maybe nothing sexual or physical, but it still greatly impacted the relationship. I need to say at the same time that I've seen couples come out the other end, fight for their marriage, and, 
And I couldn't compare two couples and say, well, these people, it didn't work out for them, and these people fought really, really hard. It was hard for both couples. It was difficult for both situations. And, and, and it wasn't that the couple that didn't work out for loved God less or believed in God's word less. It was just didn't work out for them. And for the couple that fought and fought and fought and went through counseling and, 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 and a million tears, it did work out for them. But I can't say that they were any godlier. They had any high, higher esteem for God's word than the other. I've worked with students over the years uh, who have dealt with abandonment. Dad disappeared. I'm not saying that it's always dad, but dad disappeared, and they carried with that the feeling that they had done something wrong. Young people have a very, you know, they they feel responsible. I've seen marriages come to an end because of physical, emotional, and verbal abuse. Addiction. Addiction greatly is impacted. In, in, in my family, mental illness is a big issue. And so as we cover this tonight, I want you to know that if there's a Bible study, a Bible study apart from dealing with something like hell or eternal punishment, if there's a Bible study that I give, I do this one with tears. I do this one, I feel this one. And, I, and if, if I, anything that I've described here is you, I feel I feel you, and, and my, the last thing I want to do apart from preaching or teaching what the scripture is, is to, is to for you in any way, like that, that little girl, and I, she's in her 40s now, I see her occasionally, she's still in my mind a little girl that felt like something was wrong, wrong with her. Uh, I, I want to begin our study by, by looking at two biblical events. Uh, I'll get into the scripture here in a minute. One is from Israel's history. It's, it's during the time of the prophet Malachi. The second is from the life of John the Baptist. It's interesting that, that Malachi and John are related in that Malachi being the last prophet of the Old Testament that is prior to the, the 400 years of silence and, and John being on the other 400 years that he'd be the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And, and Malachi the prophet would reference John. In Malachi 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple in the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so there's a a connection between the two. And the second is John the Baptist. We're quite familiar with him. We covered covered him when we began our study in the Gospel of Mark, we'll uh, begin with Malachi. His name means messenger from God. And I think if you're a prophet, this is a good, this is a good name to have. You know, who's here, messenger from God? I mean, you know, it kinda, it's, it, it's kind of a, a good title, maybe your resume. Um, it's important to know that he lived after the Babylonian captivity. That is, a hundred years after some, not, not a lot, but some of the Jews returned to Israel, Malachi's ministry took place. The temple had been rebuilt. This was a good thing, albeit the structure was humbled compared to the Solomon's temple. There was this continual comparison and the people, the people thought about the previous temple as they looked at the temple before them. Worship of Yahweh would become ritualistic. Think going through the motions, religious in a negative sense. 
during this dry, spiritually dry time, men divorced their Jewish wives to marry non-Jewish women. And in marrying non-Jewish women came the introduction of their pagan wives, their influence. This disobedience was a byproduct, that is, this divorcing was a byproduct of the superficial worship. Through Malachi, God spoke to the priests. Now, he was holding the priests responsible for the spiritual condition of the nation. I'm going to read to you, it should be on the screen, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. You need to know as I read this to you, that not all versions of the Bible read the same. This is, in the original languages, can be taken in two ways. So I'm reading to you from the New Living Translation. It's not something that I often do, but I have a point to make. And God says to the prophet, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the, Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is, is to overwhelm her with cruelty. You're doing something to your wife when you send her away, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Remember, this is something the men were doing to their spouses at this time. I want you to hear that God hated the priests' callous treatment of their wives. In fact, Malachi tells us that God heard the pleas of these women. It's important for us to know that when there's a victim and there's injustice and they cry out, God hears them. God leans forward and, 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 and listens to their plea. And he will come and he will defend them. For Israel, this resulted in his refusal to accept their worship. They went through the motions. We've already said that. They, they had all of the richness of Israel's history, but God says, I don't hear you because your wives are crying out to me because you send them away for no reason. Now, I want to be clear when I read this verse. I know you know this. God doesn't hate those who are divorced. He hates what it does to innocent, to the innocent. The second event that sets the stage for our Bible study tonight involves John the Baptist. Jesus is now currently on his way to Jerusalem, but first he lands east of Judea in the region of Perea. And for us, in a sense, this is where the New Testament begins. This is where John came preaching. This is where all of Judea and all of Jerusalem came out. They traveled out. They went down into the Jordan Valley. And they found a prophet who in appearance looked a lot like Elijah. And he preached. He proclaimed repentance in anticipation of Israel's Messiah coming. And the people, listen, the people responded. They came to him. And then he speculated, is this Messiah? And he was quick to say, no, I am not Messiah, but he is coming behind me. And he was preparing the hearts of the people to receive their king. This is where John's preaching of repentance and preparation of Messiah took place. This is where Jesus' baptism took place. This is where the Father's declaration from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, took place. But I want you to think, too, I want you to think, too, that Perea, this, this region, was where Herod Antipas was his neighborhood. 
Now, when I was young, I know it was a long time ago, when I was young, you had a neighborhood. You had a place where you lived. In my neighborhood, I lived on Lagan. I can still remember the address, 1363. It was next to Bowbeer High Elementary School. I lived in a cul-de-sac. You go down to the middle of the street is where we played football. This manhole cover over here was one end zone, and this manhole cover over here was another end zone. It's where we played baseball. Their mailbox was first base. That manhole cover, we used whatever we could, was second base, and then that uh, mailbox over there was third base. You didn't ever slide into these bases, but we played baseball. And we would stop when a car came. A car would go by, we would jump back out there. The only thing that would really stop a football game or a baseball game, and I, I don't know if any of you will remember this, is, is the Helms Bakery truck would come through. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? Amen, brother and sister. Right on, the 60s and the 70s. And, and he would come through and he would honk his horn. Didn't sound like a car horn. And the women would come out and he would pull out these and, and he would sell bread and pastries and the delicacy for Danny Ramos, and this maybe happened once and twice in my entire life, was the eclair or the cream puff. And now I knew donuts. My dad went to AA. I knew what a donut was, but, but an eclair, a cream puff, I mean, for, to put that thing in your mouth and, and, and this little brown face have this white cream all over it, oh, man. It's, it's, it's not quite a tortilla, but, it, but it's very, very close. This is, na- this is Herod's neighborhood. He was Herod Antipas. I know there's a lot of Herods, and when you read your Bible, it can be confusing. But this is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. And one of the interesting things is as we get there, when Jesus is arrested and he's brought before Pilate, Pilate will have a a, a great idea, and that is to, to get Jesus away from him, he sends him to Herod. It is this Herod that Jesus stands before. And listen, It is this Herod who Jesus has not anything to say, which is so interesting to me. He refused to communicate to this man, I believe, because the man had so hardened his heart. And the only reason I bring up that he is in Herod Antipas' area is because this is where John was imprisoned for telling Herod that his marriage to his brother Philip's wife was unlawful. Eventually, Herodias, the name of Philip's wife, who hated John for speaking the truth, caught Herod in a moment of weakness. You're familiar with the story. She pressured him into executing John, something Herod did not really want to do, but because he promised, he submitted. So then Jesus is in the same area where John was murdered for telling the truth about an unlawful marriage. On his way to the cross, Jesus pauses in this remote area. It is here that a group of religious leaders question him regarding divorce. That's our Bible study tonight. But I want to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 3. 
Because Matthew adds something that is left out in Mark's account. Listen to what he says. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Listen to the words, for any cause, for any reason, for any purpose. Their goal is to find fault in Jesus' teaching, maybe even to bring charge against him, maybe even for his answer to get to Herod and for Herod to take, to take uh, care of Jesus uh, on their behalf. It didn't happen that way, but perhaps. So in verses 2 through verse 12 deals with divorce. Now, divorce is nuanced. It's not straightforward. It's not, it's not like if, if you understand one situation, you understand them all. It's complicated. But Jesus' teaching reveals important insights about marriage and divorce. And it's at this point in time that I will tell you, as some of you already know, that Wanda and I met in high school. We were married at the age of 19. We started dating at 15. We got married at at the age of 19. And so that this year, we're married 48 years. But no, let me me tell you something. Let me tell you something. It's, It's been the best thing that can happen to me, but it has also been what God has used, my relationship with my wife, to change and to transform me. Someone once said, a pastor I know, a marriage isn't to make you happy, it's to make you holy. And I hope that's the case. (laughs) Understand that even in Jesus' day, the subject was controversial. People had different takes on divorce as they do today. The conservative view is that it would only be permitted in the case of adultery. Hear me on this. It was permitted, not required. Permitted, not required. A liberal or progressive position stated that if a wife displeased her husband for any reason, then that divorce was an option. As often was the case with Jesus' answer, he brought conviction. On the screen, you'll see a quote by John Piper where he says, few things are more painful than divorce. I agree with this. It cuts to the depths of personhood unlike any other relational gash. I was working on the nucle- at the nuclear plant. I was working uh, with a, a guy I'd gone to school with, again, middle school and high school. And, and so we were friends. We weren't in from the same neighborhood, but we've known each other for a long time. And he was, he was particularly quiet. He was he's kind of a chatty guy, but, but this day he was, he was quiet. And I remember I was working. I was a believer. He wasn't a believer. I mean, he knew about Christianity and and all of a sudden, you know, I mean, we're working, 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 and we stop, you know, to take a little break. And I noticed he was weeping. And I said, buddy, what's going on? Because you don't cry at work. You don't, you don't cry at work. And he said, Danny, yesterday when I got home from work, my wife had cleaned out the house. She's gone. The kids are gone. She's gone. And I don't know what to do. I called him by his name and I said, buddy, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. He was devastated. He said, sure, we've had our challenges, but I had absolutely no idea. I had absolutely no idea that she would leave me. In time, he would become divorced. In time, he would remarry. In time, God would lead him to Christ. In verse 1, Mark moves us from the northern region Uh, of the Galilee to the south, east again of Judea. 
The words, and he left there, speaks to Jesus and the disciples leaving Capernaum. They will not return to Capernaum until after, or to the Galilee until after the resurrection. That's how close we are to the cross. So on the screen, you'll see our Bible study is Jesus' teaching on divorce, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. But first we begin in Herod's neighborhood, in his hood, where he hung out, where he lived, where he was the queso grande, translated the big cheese. It says, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan means away, way out into the wilderness, beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. This was what happened regularly. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. This is wilderness. I use the word remote. People have to travel to get to him. People have to prepare. They have to bring food. They have to bring their tent. They have to, bring, they have to, they have to stop their work. This is a big deal for people to come out and see Jesus. And yet again, this is what they do. I want you to think small groups of people, no longer the multitudes. It says that he taught them, and Jesus would, as rabbis would, is that he would read a passage, he would comment on it, and then he would ask questions, and there would, there would be answers. But keep this in mind. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the teacher. We are the students. Jesus has the knowledge, the content. We have the hearts that are receptive to hear what he hears. But in the Jewish mind, it's more than hearing. It's more than reiterating what's been said. It's hearing with the idea of obeying. You haven't heard the teacher unless your intent is to obey what he's taught you. Verses 2 through 5, we see concession, not command. Verse 2, and Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, Mark says, they asked. This, is, this, this question is to test him. Is it lawful? Is it allowed for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Listen to that. To send her away. She had no say. She had no rights. Vulnerable to be sure. And Jesus said to them, because of uh, your hardness of heart, he wrote this command to you. I I have an unusual relationship personally with divorce. My parents fought a lot. Maybe they weren't fighting, were Hispanic. Maybe they just raised their voices because they felt passionate about a point. But almost at the conclusion of every argument, which the kids lined up with popcorn, you know, to listen, and and, and at the conclusion was the threat that I am going to leave. And when you're a little kid, you believe it, that he can be gone at any moment. He never left, but that doesn't mean kids don't understand that parents are just talking. So what we have here is that the religious leaders come, they pursue, they find Jesus. They know he's going to Jerusalem. They know Passover's coming. There's a lot of people that'll be traveling in that direction. But they come to him, they find him specifically because they have a plan that they're working out. 
The idea of them asking this question is that they asked him repeatedly, over and over and over again. The words to test him reveals the fact that they are attacking him, that they are on the offense, expecting him to be on the defense. I also want you to think about something that was very true about these religious men, these religious leaders, these religious power brokers, is that they were hypocritical, for they acted sincere, but it's the furthest thing from sincerity. Their insincerity cloaked their hatred of Jesus. They wanted him dead. And, and, and just for a moment, it is, I am deviating, I am going down a, a rabbit trail, as some say. Insincerity today, insincerity in the church and outside the church, is how we manage our brand. It's how we manage our brand. It's how we push our agenda, how we promote an image. As a matter of fact, I don't know about you, but I think one of the most refreshing things is to speak to somebody who has no agenda, is not promoting themselves, but simply engaging with you because they actually care about it. As a matter of fact, our word sincere comes from two Latin words. The first is sine, which means without, and the second is Sarah, without Sarah wax. In the ancient world, dishonest merchants, we don't have any of those today, dishonest merchants would use wax to hide defects, such as cracks in their pottery, so that they could sell their merchandise at a higher price. Reputable merchants would hang a little sign on their pottery with the words sine sera, without wax, to inform customers that their merchandise was genuine. At the very core of insincerity is self-love. But the gospel tells us that when Jesus comes into our lives, we no longer love ourselves, we love others, and we love God. And if you've ever been in a friendship or a relationship with a believer, there is the capability to have, because of Jesus, a relationship that's deep and sincere. No pretense. No pretense. On the screen, you'll see a quote by John Bloom. John writes articles for Desire, uh, Desiring God. He says, the gospel is the end of our perceived need to mislead. We're straight shooters. Our words mean what we say and say what we mean. Now, before we move on, I'm just going to say a couple of things about the Pharisees that they held to the popular view of the day, that, that divorce was lawful if a woman displeased her husband in any way. And I want you to know, too, Jesus is going to challenge them. They came for him, but in reality, he gets them. They come to find fault in him, and in reality, he takes their hearts and he exposes it to truth. This is the way it works in these interactions. Their question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I want you to remember that verse from Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Where Matthew adds, for any cause, because that's the idea here. That's the motivation. 
for any cause, for any reason. The teaching at the time was, if your wife ages and a younger woman appeals to you, you may send your wife away. If your wife argues with you, she's displeased you, you can send your wife away. If she burns a meal, you can send your wife away. I think you get the idea. You get the idea that what Jesus is dealing with here are men who had no regard for the covenant of marriage. I'll talk more about that later, the covenant of marriage. They reply, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And they were right. They were right. But this is what Jesus digs down into. They're quoting a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 24 where Moses deals with a very casual view of the marriage covenant. Actually, I'm going to read just part of the verse, the first verse of the chapter, where Moses says, If she, the wife, finds no favor in his, the husband's, eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. And the, everything that we're going to talk about tonight, these different camps, uh, the more conservative and the more liberal, uh, those who adhered to a stricter um, Interpretation and those that were a little more progressive deal with this section of Scripture. So, first, this is a concession that a certificate of divorce was given to the wife because at the time men were simply saying the words. They come to their wife, say, we're divorced, we're divorced, we're divorced, and they send her away, leaving her vulnerable, leaving her without protection, leaving her without provision. And so then the certificate of divorce a legal document proved that the wife had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving of divorce. This gave her the opportunity to return to her father's house or to a relative's home. Again, having a covering, having protection, having provision. You can see that there is, there is a good intent in the certificate of divorce. But it also meant that she could remarry. Again, she had done nothing wrong. Second, Moses narrows the reason for allowing divorce when he says that the husband finding indecency in her refers to something shameful, not necessarily adultery, but something shameful. But then Jesus redirects the discussion or the conversation as to why Moses conceded. Verse 5, when he says, because... Your, your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus says, it wasn't your wives that were the problem. It was, listen, your hearts that were the problem. It wasn't what she did that was the problem. It's that you had no regard for God's law in dealing with your wife. And we'll see that in a moment, just, just a second here, where Jesus takes us back to the beginning. These men were in rebellion against God. They were in the wrong, not their wives. As a matter of fact, look at um, the next section, verses 6 through 9. It'll be on the screen that marriage was best at the beginning. Best at the beginning. There's a street in, in Vistas called Eucalyptus. I don't know if it's still called Eucalyptus. Um, but, 
there was an apartment there. Um, it's, it's actually, I remember when Wanda and I got married in 1975, um, April 26, 1975, we got married in the Episcopal Church down on the corner. And, and we, our first home was a one-bedroom apartment. I'll, I'll never forget it because I drove a 1969 Nova. None of this will be important to you, nor does it have anything to do with the Bible study, but I drove a 69 Nova. It had a 307 engine in it. No, no it gets better. In the glove box, I put an eight-track stereo. In the back, I beefed up some speakers. Now, these speakers were impressive. I mean, I had hair then, and if I played it loud enough, it would push my hair forward. I know. It means nothing to you. It means nothing to you. One of my eight-track tapes was Neil Young's Harvest Moon. You need to see a little Nova, silver Nova, going down the road, lifted up a little bit in the back, this young man, good-looking young Hispanic man, by the way, you know, with, with plenty of hair and the volume all the way up. We started out in a one-bedroom apartment. And we began to, in that relationship, begin to live out this thing that we call love in a different way than we had done prior to the wedding vows. And I need to be honest with you, at the time, as a 19-year-old young man, un, not a believer, not familiar with the scriptures or anything regarding covenant, I didn't know, I didn't understand. And if I have any appreciation for marriage today, it's because of what I didn't appreciate then. From there, we moved to another apartment, to another apartment, to another apartment, until back to my neighborhood, I was able to, we were able to buy a home. And then from that home, we went to Fallbrook, and from Fallbrook, we went to Poway. And as I look at each of these places, the marriage began here, the marriage continued here, the marriage began here, construction, construction, construction. Oh, and then the marriage continued here. And then Linda came in 1979. And, and then in 1981, we moved to Fallbrook and Darcy came. And then there were some tough times. We, money was tight. And, and, and for so much of that time, we, we barely got by. And, 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 and then there were arguments, but there were good times. And then there were these, what we used to call vacations. They weren't really vacations, but if, in case you didn't know it, if you went to Palm Desert and you, you did a timeshare, uh, you know, tour, they let you stay there for a couple of days, and so those were our vacations, and then, and then when the kids, you know, when we, we couldn't afford to take them anywhere, we'd take them to model homes, and we'd go, we're going to model homes today, and they'd run through these model homes, up the stairs, down the stairs, and I wouldn't trade any of that, one second of that, for what I have today when I look in my wife's green eyes. To go from 15 years old to 67 years old. She's younger than me. No, not really, but 67 years old. And my friends, for all the money in the world, for all those shared experiences, for finding Jesus together and being a part of a very humble, small church together and going from one ministry to the next ministry to coming to this ministry, I am telling you this evening that there are times that I foolishly could have easily walked away from it all, not knowing, not understanding that the best years were ahead of me. In a moment of anger, I'm a very angry man, in a moment of selfishness, 
In a moment of my insecurity raged, I could have walked away from it all, but by the grace of God, I am no better than anyone else, but by God's grace and his mercy. It was best at the beginning, Jesus says, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, now remember who he's engaging with, the, the uh, Pharisees, religious leaders. These are the ones who teach others the law. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. He's, he's speaking to these men who just said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Let not man separate. I want you to see that before the fall, God instituted marriage. This was his intent. This was his plan for a man and a woman that he would take from man's side. Not from his feet, not from his head, but from his side. As a matter of fact, if you, you'll never see this happen, but, but sometimes in, in public, when, when, when we think nobody's around, I'll put my arm around her. She fits perfectly right here. She fits perfectly right here. And, and, and even though she's, she's shorter than me, she can, she could take me down like that. She could, she could take me down like that. I love that woman. See a pre-fall view of marriage. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't look at what you're doing. Don't look at what the culture's doing. Look at what God did when it was the best. When it was the best, when it was perfect, when his blessing was upon them and sin hadn't staled, hadn't, hadn't hurt them, come to when it was the best, when they were naked and they loved each other and they loved their God. Go to when it was the best. Not, not, please not, when it was the worst. But from the beginning... God's plan for man and woman becoming one flesh. There's a fair amount of talk, my friends, about miracles today, and that's fine, rightfully so. But to me, marriage is really a miraculous work of God when he brings two very different people together, and then he begins to work. Then he begins to, to work them together, and they, and they, they don't fit back together and, and then there is, there is love and they, they fit and they work and they talk and they forgive and they ask for forgiveness and they give forgiveness and they say, and, and they say here, let me enjoy. I got to tell you a story. I know. I, I maybe have told this story before, but but there was a, a, a young doctor, and, and he had graduated, and he was working nights in a hospital. And, and he was checking on the, on the patients through the evening. You know, newbie, you worked a night shift. He said that usually they were asleep, but he'd look in, check on them, you know, make sure everything was okay, until he said one night. In the middle of the night, he came to this room. 
He said there were a young couple. The, the, the wife was, was in the bed and the husband in the middle of the night was, 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 was sitting beside her and, and, and she said something like, during the surgery, they, surgery on her face, they cut a nerve and, and the, the corner of her, her mouth now dropped down a little bit and, and she, said, she said, is this okay? And he says, you're beautiful. She goes, but, but it, it, I saw it in the mirror. It looks kind of funny. And then he, the doctor said, the young husband did this. He drew near and he adjusted his mouth to match his wife's mouth. And he says, look, it still works. And he kissed her. And please don't take this out of context. But the doctor said he felt as though that was the most sacred moment he had ever seen in his life. And he felt like that he was in the presence of divinity. He wasn't. We understand that. We know what he was trying to say. My friends, marriage is when our lips are adjusted to kiss. When we adjust ourselves to serve or to benefit our spouse. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're almost done. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of one body. Therefore, a man shall leave. This is the quote from, the, from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Listen to this. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. It refers to Christ in the church. This picture, this illustration, this object lesson, it's a mystery, but it reminds us of the intimacy and the closeness of Jesus and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, almost done. For you and I, marriage is a sacred example of the relationship between Jesus, God, and his people. And we, the church, must honor the covenant of marriage at all costs. No one, no one in thought or in practice is to cross the line with a married person. In the same way that we wouldn't, in the same way that we wouldn't in any way mess with the relationship between Jesus and the church, you and I are to honor and respect the marriage covenant between another man and another woman. We are to honor and respect and cherish. Our relationship with our spouses are exclusive. They're to be nourished above any other relationship. How we men treat our wives impacts our spiritual lives. In 1 Peter 3, 7, this should be on the screen as well. Likewise, or in the same way, husbands, love your wives in an, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, 
Listen to this. Listen to this word. Listen to this word. Listen to this word. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers before God may not be hindered. I think of the priests in Malachi's day. God says, I don't hear your worship. I don't receive your worship because of the way you're treating your wife. Lastly, consequences, choices come with consequences, verses 10 through 12, and we'll be done. And in the house, that is afterwards, after this interaction with the, the disciples who had listened on, asked him, Jesus, about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery with her. This is hard, hard saying. That's Danny talking, not Mark. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I'm going to read two things. Two things from Matthew chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Matthew chapter 5 deals with adultery or sexual immorality. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15 deals with abandonment. There are other issues outside of the scripture that, that couples will separate and even divorce over. But we're just going to deal with this and then we'll be done. The Lord permits but does not require divorce in the event of infidelity. Again, Matthew 5, 22, you'll recognize that as coming from the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whomever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Give me a minute. 1 Corinthians 7, but if the unbelieving partner separates or leaves, this would be, again, abandonment. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Outside of the scriptures is the conviction that physical abuse, a physically abusive spouse has broken the covenant of marriage. Every situation is different, and the, and the decision is difficult. If we are to do anything, we are to be, as a church, there for the victim. In my opinion, and it is opinion that, uh, that to divorce for any other reason is adultery, other than adultery, abandonment, or abuse, means that remarriage is an act, is an act and not a state of adultery. And I want you to hear me on this. So let's say, let's say for some reason, Wanda and I would have divorced. And we were to find somebody else and we were to remarry. Our remarriage, I believe, is not a state of adultery. It's not a state that cannot be forgiven. I hope I'm clear on this. I wanted to slow down. It's not a state of adultery. And this is, this is why I believe this. Remember that Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to die for all sin. He's on his way to die for all sins so that we might be forgiven. And I'll close with one verse. Actually, two verses. I lied to you. I shouldn't lie in church. But anyways, I meant two. John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? This is a woman caught in the act of adultery. And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Listen to these words. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.